Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Tech Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio. For 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you bang up to date on all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. Joining me, as always, is our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief, uh, Niall Kitson, to take a quick look at some of the uh, stories that are grabbing our attention this week. And I suppose the first one, really, Niall, is uh, Facebook and their and their grand plans for a currency of their own. Yeah, we talked about this last week, didn't didn't we? And uh, how it was last week we were. Yeah, the news was last week was PayPal had pulled out, and I said they're going to yeah. be in trouble if Mastercard and Visa pull out. And guess what? Guess what? Yeah, it gets it gets worse and worse. And on top of the um, the credit card companies, we have now lost uh, eBay and Stripe. Mm. I mean, if you lose PayPal, you know eBay is on the way as well. But um, yeah, losing um, Stripe is a is a huge one because they're such a an innovative company when it comes to payments processing. I don't know if you've used a website that has uh, that that uses Stripe. I use Stripe myself. I use Stripe myself, and I find them absolutely brilliant. Miles ahead of PayPal. Um, so when you've got a, a website that, or a service that uh, that works that well and they've decided, OK, we're not terribly uh, into Libra, I think that's that's not good, is it? I mean, that's that is a hefty chunk of the golden 28 people attached to the Libra Foundation. Well, they were the, um, they were have, they were the brands that actually deal with money and payments <laughs> and, and they've all kind of left. <laughs> Yeah, and that kind of leaves sort of the telcos. Um, uh, are there a couple of government regulators in there as well? But I mean, France and Germany have outright said uh, no. <laughs> well, this is this is where I think the uphill battle for Facebook is going to be because the Facebook are kind of saying, all right, we're a huge organization. We've got two, three, four billion people, residents of planet Earth who are part of our organization. So we want to run our own currency. Now, mm. all of the people and governments who run other currencies and have got all kinds of controls and keep eyes on people, sorry, I'm getting into conspiracy theory again, but you know what I'm saying, um, yeah. that they have control of currencies, they're kind of going, well, <laughs> we're not going to have Facebook having their own currency. That's not going to happen. And yeah, I yeah. think Facebook will have the problem then where they're trying to get their currency to interact with the rest of the world because that will be the key to making it happen. So I just don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, well, that on Facebook has such a tarnished reputation as being sort of a bad actor, particularly when it comes to user privacy and mm. data mining, that, you know, why would you want to give sort of additional credence or additional credibility to a company that treats its users even worse than governments, Dusty? Well, it's it's like in the American uh, currency, it says, in God we trust. Do you think uh, we're going to have Libra in Facebook we trust? Ah! <laughs> Two chances. So uh, the other thing that we were kind of looking at really was Google Pixel 4, amazing camera as ever. But there was something missing from that announcement that you kind of went, oh, 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 what's going on here? Yeah, this was a, a little bit in the background. Nobody likes to talk about failure, really. Uh, but Google's um, uh, foray into virtual reality, or rather their, their most recent, because they had Project Tango that you might remember was, uh, was canned, uh, 
But then it was sort of replaced with uh, Daydream, which was their competitor, I suppose, for Oculus and HTC. Um, more so Oculus because it was sort of a, a bit more of a, a mobile uh, product, had a remote control, but you didn't necessarily need it. You didn't need a, a computer for it to sync up with. You just needed a, an app and that was it. But uh, yep, that has also been canned. So Google no longer has an interest in virtual reality, at least for the moment anyway. So that's... If you look at their um, experience with blended reality, they had um, the Google Glass, uh, which didn't last very long. And I think it's agreed now that it was just pitched to the wrong market, that um, sort of uh, augmented reality like uh, Google Glass is actually doing well in industry and manufacturing and spaces like that. Uh, that consumer just, just wasn't ready for it and perhaps isn't a good fit for it at all. Uh, and now they've, they've said goodbye to Daydream, which I think will be much more disappointing to them because VR is such a growth, uh, it's such a growth industry. It's such a growth um, segment that I think it is just going to be become part of the normal uh, computing zeitgeist or, you know, computing mm. panoply of uh, products, if you will. So um, I think, yeah, it's disappointing from their perspective. It'll make you wonder what's next on the chopping block because Google are very good at their core services. But anything that they've tried sort of beyond that, like Google Plus, for example, Google Wave, mm. these things have good ideas, but they just don't catch on. But then again, like Google have done an awful lot of good things that that, that did work. Uh, and I'm just thinking Gmail off the top of my head uh, straight away. Uh, Maps is another good one uh, uh, as well. Yeah. These are things that did work for them. And what I like about Google <clears throat> in some extent is that they will try things. And if it works, it works fantastically well. And not everything's going to work now. Do you know what I mean? In, in our lives, no matter what it is that we do, you try. It's, it's like they say with venture capitalists, you'll invest in 10 projects. Seven of them will die. Uh, two of them will do okay. And one of them should be a spectacular success. That's how they make their money. Yeah, yeah, I'd, uh, I'd agree with you on that front. Uh, it's, just, it's just a shame that Google couldn't get something to work when you look at the projects in this area that have failed. I mean, we still haven't seen anything from Magic Leap on the on the shelves. Mm-hmm. Um, the projects that have failed, now we can say Daydream, now we can say Google Glass. Uh, even HTC is still plugging along with the with the Vive, Vive uh, even though it's still very, very expensive. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a shame. I think this Google will have to chalk the end of Daydream down to failure as opposed to the space not being ready. Uh, which is which is very disappointing. You're in a terribly negative place this week, Niall, aren't you? <laughs> well, we have a very positive interviews, so I guess, you know, it, it'll balance out. <laughs> that is so sure, so sure. Listen, we leave the news for there and we get straight into that positive interview. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Have you ever thought about how we learn and how we might improve the way that we learn. Dr. Celine Mullins is a psychologist, author, and the CEO of the training consultancy Adaptus, and she has devoted a lot of time with coming up with cool ways to do just that. She sat down and had a chat with Niall Kitson at the recent Learnovate conference to share some of her ideas. Based on what's happening in the news and the literature and popular culture at the moment, you you would think that our understanding of learning is actually, you know, is relatively recent. Um, it's not really, though. It goes back about 100 years, uh, particularly the model that we're familiar with at the moment. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of information. I mean, I remember when I started studying psychology over 20 years ago, aging myself now, that there were so many um, theories and um, psychologists that we were learning about, whether it was Watson, Thorndike, Skinner, Pavlov, etc. Um, and there was the elements that they were talking about, which now we have... Uh, a lot of the neuroscience to back up um, and even there was you know computer scientists um, you know the the creators of uh, neurolinguistic programming were talking about a lot of um, you know notions that we now know to be true around how the brain learns and what information the brain actually needs in order to learn and in order to embed learning long term so yeah so it's not new but that we now have the neuroscience to back it up um, but it's it, it's sad in a way isn't it that we have to wait until the science is there to prove what we already knew yeah and you know some of the principles uh, that have that we've discovered to be true they very easy to actually validate uh, using some sort of you know rigorous method that doesn't resort to uh, chemical analysis cat scan a, a pet scan again you made mention of of pavlov and skinner uh, and thorndike and what i think is interesting about thorndike is that he described sort of the process as much as the observation as well so he, he went and he described how people learn in in quite a novel way starting with you had to be ready to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that that is really apt right now because there's a lot, I mean, companies are spending hundreds of thousands on learning and they're hoping that it's going to land. Um, and a lot of the time, yeah, people aren't ready for it. They're not ready to take that learning on board um, and apply it immediately. And if it's not applied immediately, it's going to be lost. It's going to be forgotten. Um, so if we, you know, if we're not helping, you know, what I'm really interested in is we've got to help people who are going through learning events or learning workshops or learning online to really identify what what's the purpose of learning this and why they want to learn it. Otherwise, it's forgotten. It's lost. Mm. And one of the interesting things from the, neuro, uh, the neuropsychological perspective is that we're learning for want of a better expression, that learning as an end in itself isn't necessarily particularly uh, valuable, but w we now have an understanding of neurochemicals, uh, particularly dop dopamine, uh, which is sort of saying, do you know what? Yeah, there's there's kind of a, a manipulative element, I guess, in some respects. Yeah, you know, I mean, there is now a lot of evidence to show that we, if, if we do keep learning, that our brain will become it's creating new neural pathways as we're learning that it keeps our brain uh, younger and more agile for longer uh, so so yeah the sometimes the learning you know like at the moment I, I, I keep meaning to learn Portuguese um, but it's very hard to make myself learn Portuguese if I'm not going to Portugal um, but more recently what I've been trying to tell myself is well even if I learn it with a view to creating new neural pathways, that's actually going to keep my brain fresh. Um, you know, and so there's some people who are involved in this area who who make it their job to every year they learn something new, whether it's a new language, a new musical instrument, a new uh, computer program, anything that's going to really tax their brain. Because anytime you're really challenging your brain, then it, it starts to really work fully. Um, and if we don't, 
um, tax our brain, and which which a lot of us as adults do. We get very, very comfortable doing the same thing in the same way with the same people in the same places at the same time. You know, our our brain it, it's not it's ultimately it's not gro- growing, it's not changing structure as much as we could help it to. I guess that's the illusion of efficiency, really, isn't it? Right? Mm. Developing that comfort when in fact you're you're limiting your uh, potential. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a you know, there's a, a, I guess, what's the word, like a, a curve at which, you know, you've, you've got to challenge yourself to a certain extent. But obviously, if you challenge yourself too much, then you you can also lose the learnings because then you can become overwhelmed because there's so many things to do on a day to day basis in our lives. And so, yeah, there's a, this certain level, like what is that balance? What is that happy medium between being efficient with your time, being productive, um, uh, but, you know, and in your efficiency, being productive in your efficiency while learning while growing while changing while being adaptable Um, and it'll be different that balance is different for each of us as as individuals we've got to know ourselves in order to find that balance so in your own study of learning one of the interesting things you've come across is the use of virtual reality so tell us a little bit about uh, your experience there yeah so we um last uh, sorry, two years ago now, we started creating virtual reality um, training tools with our clients. And what I'm really interested in here is the use of this technology, not just for the sake of this cool technology, which is now affordable to use um, compared to 20 years ago. It wasn't affordable at all. Um, but what's really interesting here is that using virtual reality, you can create um, what we call false memories. So, you know, If you think about how the brain works, our brain, when it comes to creating, say, new neural pathways, it doesn't know the difference between what's really happening and what you're imagining is happening. So people who have um, gone through these training experiences using this virtual reality, on the other side, their brain actually now thinks that they know and they understand a lot of this information. Um, And so... What we found with, a, say, for example, a piece that we created with FBD Insurance, which just at the beginning of 2019 won an award for excellence in digital learning, um, we found that the people, the trainees in the, their customer call centre in uh, Mullingar with FBD, what they found is they would... Uh, go through this virtual reality experience three times so that was 15 to 16 minutes three times over the course of a few days and they compared to the people who went through the regular training those people who'd gone through the virtual reality experiences seemed they actually were convinced that they had done these real customer calls before and so they had created these false memories which of course, you've got to be very careful about because you want to be creating experiences that are positive and useful rather than um, negative or, or scary. Uh, so I would ne- personally, I would never sit in a virtual reality experience that is a haunted house. I did it once to my... <laughs> it was a big mistake um, because uh, your brain then has to work out well, what's real and what's not afterwards. It's one of the sort of the paradoxes of virtual reality really, isn't it? That you need so much specialised equipment that you're completely aware of, yet you can use it to generate false memories, Mm -hmm. therefore implying that the the brain has a very different level of suspension of disbelief that can transcend, you you know, the feeling of a heavy visor on your head or a haptic glove. Yeah, it's, it's, what we found is that, you know, a, um, 
our bodies yeah will adjust very quickly um but you have to be really careful and um, because if say if you have created shot of virtual reality experience say in 360 and if there's anything so say for example if the piece has create been created with somebody sitting down but then the user is experiencing it standing up that can actually make the person feel dizzy using it and so therefore they're brought out of the virtual reality and they feel uncomfortable so therefore the experience is not useful in any way and can be quite disconcerting so when designing virtual reality you've got to really think about how the end user is going to be experiencing and using this in order to match in with creating an experience that actually very quickly the, the brain will go oh yes, this is real. So bringing things back to earth ever so slightly and and looking at your own uh, work in learning and memory at the moment. Um, tell us a little bit, I, I gather you've developed a, a seven point, for want of a, a nicer term, a plan. <laughs> yeah, seven point plan. Um, yeah, so I think... It was about maybe about eight years ago. Uh, I, you know, I, I've been working with people. My background's a psychologist and a coach, and I set up my business twelve years ago. And during the process of the last over a decade of working with people in organizations, like working one to one with people, working with groups, working with teams, and looking at how quickly or how long it takes them to adopt the learning or if they're going through coaching to actually make the changes that they're looking to make I became you know really fascinated with what is the difference between the people that um, you know, actually create the change in their lives or take on the learning uh, and the information and utilize it. And uh, and from that, that, that's what, you know, even though my background was in psychology, um, it was then that I really started examining this, like both in practice with my clients and also then looking at all of the, um, the research findings that were coming out, <coughs> excuse me, in neuroscience and neuropsychology and trying to knit this together. And from that, then I created the seven step process. But the thing is, it's a seven step I called it a seven step process because there are steps there that you can follow that help you to really make the learning that you're doing tangible and real um but it's not necessarily a seven step process that once you've got to set step seven you've done it all like you've got to be using those steps continuously and simultaneously you might get to step three but you might realize that it's not what you're trying to do differently or the learning you're trying to take on it's not sticking so you actually might need to go back to step one uh pull yourself forward to step seven and come back and forth so it's it's hard to know what to call it maybe it is a what did you call it a seven a step action plan i don't know <laughs> so what elements do you think are the most important uh, I mean, do we do we have to start with that level of readiness or does exposure in the background eventually lead to something sticking? Well, I think that this is a really interesting kind of question and, and piece that you're asking there, because, you know, a lot we can be nudged towards certain behaviours um, unconsciously without any conscious awareness of it. Um but if it's something that, uh, if, if the environment that has been created around us is not nudging us towards that, like maybe it's the way um, other people are behaving, maybe it's the way the, the, um, the office is laid out. If the environment is not nudging us in a certain direction, then my, my opinion is that you've got to take 
and be consciously aware of the change that you're making and how you're going to get there. Um, so change can happen consciously and unconsciously, but it just depends on the environment and what support is there that is unconsciously bringing you towards where you want to be. I'm not sure if I've answered your question there. No, and, and there's also the, uh, the uh, issue of repetition that, that we have in the background there. I mean, you mentioned the point of, you know, looking to learn something important each year, but if you're not actually practicing skills, to what extent do you think they atrophy and can be relearned? Well, you see, this is the biggest biggest challenge in learning and development is that a lot of the learning is a once-off. Um, the learning experience might be a once-off. It might be a half-day workshop. It might be a five-day program. It might be um, sometimes, you know, in some organizations, they're trying to cut right back and do, you know, come in for an hour. Um, and they're hoping that people's behaviors will change based on these these short moments and the problem is that we only create new neural pathways through repetition 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 so if we are if we don't either have a plan in place um plus somebody else to hold us accountable um plus um you know really bite-sized chunks to get us to where we want to be then it's very unlikely that that learning is going to embed just from that once-off event and um, there's a very well-known learning leader called Elliot Maisie and he talks about how learning is a process it's not an event uh, one of the I guess schools of thought occupying the zeitgeist when it comes to learning is the the 5,000 or the 10,000 hour model that seems to imply that if you repeat something for that length of time you will become an expert in it. Mm -hmm. It seems to be on the verge of being debunked at the moment uh, in part I guess because it implies a certain passivity on the part of the learner. Where do you stand on this? Is is it a matter of repeating for that level of time to reach a level of expertise or do you require, you know, constant feedback, constant new uh, exposure, constant different experiences or variations? Mm-hmm. Well, in, in psychology and memory, we talk about the depth of processing. So, yes, definitely, it's not enough just to repeat, repeat, repeat. I mean, even an athlete, you know, say a tennis player, it's, it's yes, there's a certain amount of repetition, repetition, repetition of, of that, say, the, the serve. Um However, I, it, what what we find is that they've even got to be thinking about this, the depth of processing. And, you know, if they're thinking about every single element of their body that's involved in this and, and, and managing their mind around the thought process that's going into that serve, then there's there's a, a deeper a deeper amount of processing that is going on. And therefore, it, it is more likely to stick. And so you don't necessarily need that 10,000 hours of repetition. What you need is to really process the information as deeply as you can so you know even with people that I'm uh, you know bringing through a learning process I'm trying to get them to really identify you know what what tangibly specifically do you want to do here differently and what like imagine the outcome of that imagine how it's going to feel imagine how it's going to look imagine the people that are going to be around you um, imagine as much as possible bringing that to life so it's it's like mental practice it's visualization the more we can make it real in our bodies as well as our minds 
then we are more likely to to get there quicker. And, you know, like one of my frustrations all along in, in this industry has been that there is a lot of passive learning and you mentioned that earlier that goes on and if you're not helping people to apply that learning and process it and make sense of it and have feedback conversations around it constantly then in essence for most learners you're wasting your money the end point of any learning process is is change effectively. Um, Do you think employers who are investing in learning programs understand the amount of change or, you know, what is a realistic uh, point at which they can measure a change or improvement in their staff? Do you think there's an understanding of the kind of effort that needs to go into uh, developing competence in certain tasks as opposed to others? Are you able to identify something that goes that's a half a day workshop or that's a three week course. No, I mean, I don't think that's ever going to be possible, really. Um, there's a number of different things I was thinking as you were as you were saying that. Um, number one is that, yep, each of us learn differently. Each of us have a different capacity for new information. Each of us have so many other things going on in our lives. Um, the space is not being made in organizations um, necessarily to to really apply the learning. So there is still an attitude of, oh, you go to that workshop and sure, let's see what happens. Um, and the problem is that measuring, like so most, all of my work is around soft skills, which, you know, we could talk about that, that term soft skills forever because it is one of the hardest things to do is to change our soft behaviours like how we communicate um, how we're managing our own mind our resilience um, our emotional intelligence uh, it's very very difficult to measure the change there and you know, one of the ways to measure measure the change is when somebody has been through a program and if they have been um, supported in that change and their line manager is supporting them and giving them feedback and having ongoing conversations. OK, how did you apply that and, and, and how did it make you feel and what was the outcome and what would you do, do differently next time? If the line manager is having those conversations, then it's much more likely to embed Um and it's going to be the people around you that are going to notice the difference. But even if we measure the, you know, the, the, the outcomes through asking other people, it can take different people, um, different um, amounts of time to even notice the change, both in themselves and in others. Um, and and so it's very, very difficult to measure. And definitely, you know, come to come back to your point there. No, absolutely not. We and you know this as well. We can't say, oh yeah, by sending people on a half a day that this is what the difference will be or this is what the outcome will be. We just don't know. Um, and and I and I think that this is, um, you know, this this is the mistake that some organisations are making. Is is that it's kind of it's almost like throwing something on the wall and hoping it will stick it's not going to stick unless people are really supported to embed long term um, and that can be done by a really good line manager but you know the 70 20 10 principle which has become more popular in organizations is fine and it works really well if the line manager knows how to coach knows how to support knows how to give feedback um, and one of the biggest issues in organizations at the moment is that 
being comfortable with giving and receiving feedback. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Adaptas CEO Dr. Celine Mullins. Her book, Our Learning Brain, Engaging Your Brain for Learning and Habit Change, is available now on Kindle with Amazon. That's almost it for our show this week. Just before we go, Niall is still with us uh, with uh, one more thing, something we just weren't able to get in on the podcast, but is available online. What is that? Yeah, good news for Irish science. Uh, two scientists have been selected to join uh, the space race at the European Space Agency. You can get all the details on that and all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more on our website at techcentral.ie or of course listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio One Extra. On to next week from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Nile Kitson. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com Tech Central